All right, it's wonderful to, uh, to be with you again tonight. We are going to begin a series of sermons through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as well. And so these sermons will go back and forth between Sunday morning and Sunday night. So the book of Ezra comes more near the front of your Bible. You haven't quite gotten to the book of Psalms yet when you find Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, for much of uh, their history, were one book. Um, so when you see Ezra and Nehemiah divided, that's something that came to us uh, a little bit later in the process, development, and uh, the giving of Scripture. So Ezra and Nehemiah, though, for, for much of their history, were one book, and they read best <laughs> and are interpreted best as one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll talk about that more as we go We'll do some of Ezra and Nehemiah on Sunday night, and we'll jump over and do some on Sunday morning because we're talking about having a fresh start, and Ezra and Nehemiah are about having a fresh start. There's a group of people going back to the promised land from, from exile, and what does it mean when you get a fresh start back, back in the promised land? So we're going to talk about that. Tonight we'll be looking at, at several, several different passages. If you didn't pick up one of the uh, note booklets back there on the the hymn cart, you can grab one of those, but we'll be working through this. On the back, let me address uh, your attention to the schedule that, that is on the back of, of your notes. Gwen is working to make some of these fall schedules that will be out in the lobby next week, and you can pick up and take one home and put it on the fridge or whatever, but I wanted you to see where we're going. Uh, next Sunday night, we will gather back together and, and have Sunday evening worship. Wednesday, September 1st, we start back with our meals and, and our groups, uh, still looking for a couple of people to help Wednesday afternoon in the kitchen. If you've got some hours you can give and are able to do that for a little bit, we'd love to, love to have that. We won't do anything uh, Sunday night of Labor Day. Then Thursday, September 9th, Pastor's Potluck is back. Uh, now, you're paying for the potluck instead of bringing the food. <laughs> we're not sure if we're ready for old school potlucks yet uh, with everything going on in the world. So we're going to be providing the food, but... Bring your friends. We want to come and just fellowship, spend time together. So that's on Thursday uh, at, at lunch on September the 9th. Let me direct your attention to September the 12th. That morning, during the morning service, if things come together, we're hoping to share uh, a master plan of sorts that we're working on for around the campus and some things that the Lord is doing in our church. In fact, I just came from a building and grounds committee meeting, uh, talking through some of those things. So the hope is September 12th, that morning, we can share some of that. And then that night, September 12th, we'll have uh, a time of prayer, a time of Bible study, uh, but also a business meeting and a chance that you can ask questions uh, about that master plan. And we'll probably have our architects here, and it won't be a decision-making business meeting for that plan. It'll just be a chance to ask questions, review it, talk about it, pray about it as a church, and then we'll go into a season of prayer related to that and then look at a vote and beginning to take some action on a few of those items. So they're going to be fun. I'm excited about it. It's, it's really neat, really neat things, but that'll be September 12th. That next Sunday evening, September 19th, the women are doing a fellowship night, treats and trivia for women of all ages. Guys, we have no idea what we're going to do, but Jaren and I are going to come up with something. <laughs> so uh, they're doing treats and trivia. We might do uh, 
prayer and pigskin? I don't know. I have no idea what we're going to come up with. So we might do prayer and watch some football out in the lobby. We're going to come up with something for you guys for that, for that evening. Ladies are going to be with ladies of the church having fun that evening, and the guys will do something. Uh, and then you can kind of see how the, how the schedule falls out from there throughout the, uh, throughout the semester. But I want you to know about those coming up, and we'll continue to do things on Sunday night. All right. Enough of that. Let's look at the book of Ezra in, in your Old Testament and read chapter 1 together. And we'll talk about some of the verses tonight and we'll, we'll keep rolling next week. All right, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshabar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's do some background work and, and understand kind of what we're talking about when we're dealing with Ezra and Nehemiah. When we look at a book in the Bible, we know who the author is. The author is God. But it's also good to examine who's the human author of that book. How did God work through the human authors to give us uh, the scriptures in the way we have? Among conservative commentators, so this is, these are folks that believe the Bible, honor the word of God. There are still three different theories of authorship of the words of these books. The first theory is that Ezra is the author of Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. And I should say at this point, when you think Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible, connect that so closely with First and Second Chronicles. Those are all peas in a pod. Uh, the way that the language works, the way the theology works. Uh, we're actually going to read here in just a second the end of Second Chronicles, and you'll see really quickly the connections there. But, but don't think it's strange that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are connected. That's very purposeful in, in our Bibles. Uh, the Hebrew... Um, so the ordering of the Old Testament in your Bible, and my Bible, 
is not exactly the same as the ordering in the original Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, you get these books tucked at the very end because it's the return of exile, it's preparing for the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. So these books and our English Bible come fairly close to the beginning. Hebrew Bible, for the people, the Israelites, uh, the Jewish people, these were at the very end of, of their Hebrew Bible. So that was theory number one, Ezra wrote all these. Theory number two, Ezra wrote Ezra, Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah. They each wrote their own distinctive books and contributed and brought them together. A third theory, and one that has a lot of uh, basis to it, is that the chronicler, <laughs> the one who wrote First and Second Chronicles, also worked to bring together Ezra's memoirs that he had developed and written, Nehemiah's memoirs that he had written and developed, and then added some third-person commentary and, and development to it and brought all this together. And so it wasn't Ezra or Nehemiah that developed the final form, Ezra contributed his work, Nehemiah contributed his work, and there was a chronicler who brought it all together and edited it into its final form that we have right now. That's probably the theory that has the most uh, just scholarly backing to it, and because it, and it's really the best of all the options. <laughs> you have Ezra's writing, you have Nehemiah's writings, and then you have this final editor or chronicler who brings it all together and gives us Ezra-Nehemiah as the combined scroll. Again, None of those theories have we gone outside the Word of God. We're just trying to think, how did this come together? And in fact, let's take a little break here and read the end of Second Chronicles, and you'll see uh, that it's conveniently located right next to the page, hopefully, uh, if you're looking at Ezra chapter 1. But look at the way that Second that Chronicles ends here. If we back up as far as verse 17 of chapter 36, so this is Second Chronicles Chapter 36, verse 17, hopefully just a page to the left from where you were before. Verse 17 says, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans and Babylonians, same group. We're talking about Babylon and Chaldea, same group. Who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. This is talking about the exile, the taking away of the people from the promised land. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now if you think to yourself, Wait, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> it's because it's almost exactly the same wording that you get at the beginning of Ezra. So you can see the strong connection between First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. They're all living in the same world. The question is, what world is that? 
Well, there are your notes. Let's do a little cultural and historical background. First, remember the rise and fall of Babylon. So here comes Babylon on the scene. Uh, as early as 609 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is making incredible inroads into this area. By 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is starting to take some of the first people away. Daniel and his buddies are starting to go away. By 587, 586, depending on which calendar you're using, the temple is destroyed and the people are sent out of Jerusalem. This is the famous exile. Now, not everybody goes out of Jerusalem at this time, but a lot of people go to Babylon. Some, like Jeremiah, are taken down to Egypt and some are left behind. And that's actually going to become important next week when we look at the book of Ezra. So you have some of the people that are left in Jerusalem, some are taken to Babylon, and some are taken down to Egypt. But by 587, 586, things have completely fallen apart. Then you have this series of Babylonian rulers. Evil Merodach, uh, whose name translates to infant terrible. Like what a great, what a great name is that? So you can tell what his parents uh, thought of him. Uh, so the terrible infant is the name of this king, Evil Merodach. Um, then you have Nabonidus, which is an interesting ruler because here he's supposed to be this mighty ruler of the Babylonians, but the Babylonians primarily worshiped Marduk. That was a prominent god, god that they worshiped there in Babylon, but Nabonidus gets fascinated by this other god, this moon god, and begins to spend so much time studying this other religion that the people in his court get upset at him and say, if you're going to study the other religion, just get out of here. Just go. So he's happy. So he goes into exile himself and starts studying this other religion. And in his place, Belshazzar comes to power. Belshazzar is that figure back in Daniel chapter 5 who is arrogant, who is completely opposed to the ways of God. And even when God confronts him, he doesn't want anything to do with, with repentance. And so Belshazzar here is kind of reaching the end of the Babylonian rulers. In fact, he's so arrogant that God allows the Persians to come in and to begin to take over the Babylonians. And that Persian ruler who comes in there is Cyrus. Cyrus, we're going to talk about more here in just a few minutes, but Cyrus comes in as, as this Persian ruler and begins to establish Persian domination. Around the year, really 539 is when he allows, allows the people to go back to the promised land, but earlier than that, he's starting to take over Babylon. He's coming in and doing his work. What's fascinating by archaeology is the archaeologists found this cylinder that's now called the Cyrus Cylinder. And if anybody ever got a chance to go to the British Museum in London, which is really, if not the top museum in the world, top three uh, for sure. So many incredible uh, biblical artifacts there. But, but this Cyrus Cylinder was found in 1879 at the Marduk Temple of Babylon. And on this cylinder, they found different references to how the Persians did politics, how they governed the people. And they found that they returned the images of non-Babylonian deities to their respective cities. So Babylon had captured all these people out there and brought them to Babylon, brought them to their area and brought all their idols and all their artifacts with them. When the Persians took over, they're like, you guys can go back home. Take all your deities, take all your gods, go back to your home 
And while you're at it, pay us a lot of tax money. So the Persians still ruled, but they ruled not by gathering everybody to them to their own area. They ruled by sending people back to their home because they thought they would be more content and less likely to cause trouble. You just send us all your tax money and you can go live back there. So on this it says they repatriated these exiled worshipers. They sent them back. They rebuilt the ruined sanctuaries of these places that had been conquered. So Babylon went in and destroyed a group's temple. The Persians said, hey, you can go back home and we'll even rebuild your temple or your sanctuary for you because we want you to be happy because we want you to pay your taxes. Um, and the number four, Cyrus in this cylinder is found to solicit prayers for himself. So you can worship whatever God you want under the Persians. You wanna worship this God called Yahweh? Knock yourself out. Just while you're at it, pray for Cyrus, who's the ruler of the Persians, and you're perfectly fine, and send in your taxes, and everything will be okay. So this is how the Persians do their ruling. You go back to your homeland, worship your God, pay your taxes, pray, do whatever you want to. So Cyrus rules. Then in 529, he dies under what historians call um, uh, mysterious circumstances, which if you've studied history, a ruler that dies under mysterious circumstances, take that for, for what it is. But he probably got poisoned, taken out by one of his own people. Something went wrong for him. Cambyses, uh, his son, takes over, and he goes down and begins to defeat the Egyptians. Then Darius, who was one of the officers of Cambyses, he takes over, and Darius is a master organizer. He's the one that allows this Persian empire to really take off and to become strong. However, Darius, if you go back to world history, he's famous for the clash between the Persians and the Greeks in the Battle of Marathon, which I think was 490 BC, if I remember correctly. And so this is the famous uprising of the Athenians. The Spartans want to get there, but they get there kind of late. And this is, this is world history on display here between the Greeks and the Persians. And so what you can already see is the Greek empire rising on the world stage, about to come in and, and defeat the Persians. It's going to take another 150 years, but they're going to get there. Xerxes was Darius' son. This is the biblical story of Esther which we'll get to on Sunday mornings in November, but this is the story of Esther, so Darius comes on. Uh, again, he has war with uh, the Greeks at Salamis, which is around 470 BC, something, something like that. Um, and then Artaxerxes is the next ruler, and Artaxerxes is the ruler of the Persians when Ezra and Nehemiah go back to do their work. So when you see Ezra and Nehemiah's name listed in the Bible, they are underneath this ruler called Artaxerxes. So that's kind of our, a little bit of our, our history lesson there on, on how that works. If you go to the next page in your notes, kind of inside of that, uh, that note sheet, thinking about the way that the book of Ezra is put together, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah together, you can see why it's all one scroll because what happens is the same pattern repeats itself three times. So think in your mind of Ezra and Nehemiah being written as one book, and you get the same pattern repeated three times. Beginning of Ezra, end of Ezra, and the beginning of Nehemiah, and then the end of Nehemiah is kind of the conclusion to it. So beginning of Ezra, Ezra 1 through 6, you have a decree made by the Persians, you have a list of people who returned, and then they face opposition. <laughs> then you go to the second half of Ezra, 
You have a decree by the Persians. You have a list of people who return. And then you have opposition that rises up internally. The way it happens is the first half of Ezra revolves around this figure named Zerubbabel. We'll get to him next week, but he leads the people when they come back. So the first half of Ezra, it revolves around Zerubbabel. Second half of Ezra revolves around Ezra. (laughs) And the first half of Nehemiah revolves around Nehemiah. So you have three patterns that are repeated with three different rulers, and everyone is designed to teach us essentially the same lesson about God sending his people back to live as his people in in the promised land there. Um, There's a timeline of events. We won't spend much time with this here on the bottom, but just kind of an idea of when this would have happened. 539, they're sending these people back. Hey, go back to your land. We'll rebuild your temple. Don't worry. Pay your taxes. (laughs) Uh, 515 B.C., that first temple uh, is, is rebuilt. Now, the older people weep when they see the temple because it doesn't carry the glory of, of the original one, and, and we'll talk more about that. It's not until 458, by most accounts, that Ezra then arrives in Jerusalem to, to bring reform, and the people aren't operating according to God's word, and, and so Ezra comes. Um, then Ezra goes back for a while, and in 445, Nehemiah comes, And he's going to lead the rebuilding of the wall, and he's going to reorganize uh, Judah. And then at the very end of the story, Ezra and Nehemiah team up, and still the people struggle. And when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you get to the end of the book, and you feel disappointed. (laughs) You're like, man, this just did not go the way it was supposed to go. And that's on purpose, because remember in the Hebrew Bible, where these books are placed. They're at the very end of the Hebrew Bible. What are the people yearning for? They need a Messiah. (laughs) They don't just need more rules. They need heart change. They need the new covenant to come. And so you read these books, and yeah, good things are happening. The temple is rebuilt, and reform is made, and yet something is still not right. And there's this yearning for the Messiah that will come, who will come 400 years later. So that's the the way it works. All right, let's talk about the text. So what does Ezra chapter 1 teach us about God? Number one, when you read Ezra chapter 1, you find that the providence of God has no bounds. (laughs) There is no limits to God's providence. And when we say providence, we mean the way he provides for his creation, but ultimately the way he directs the carrying out of his will. That God's will is always done. He always is providing and guiding. Those are the two words that we normally think of when we think of providence. God provides and God guides. His providence has no bounds over kings. Every king operates under the providential sovereignty of God. When you look down at the bottom of your note sheet, Proverbs 21.1, which I know many of you have committed to memory over the years, but Proverbs 21.1 A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. And and just to uh, piggyback over Mr. Jamie's uh, comment about heaven, (laughs) that is still true today, if we can just remember that together. And I know it doesn't always feel that way. You watch the news, it doesn't always feel that way. But Proverbs 21.1 and the reality that God's providence over worldly rulers is still true today. When you go back to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first year, 
of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Cyrus came up with a good plan. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. On a human level, why did Cyrus let the people go back to their land? It was good political strategy. He's like, these people will be content, they'll pay their taxes, it'll save me a lot of trouble. It was good political strategy. On a larger scale, though, why did Cyrus let the people go back to the promised land? Because God directed it, because God stirred up their hearts. When you see the name Cyrus in the Bible, if you want to write a note here, you can. If your Bible has cross-references, it'll probably do this automatically for you. But turn over to Isaiah chapter 45, just, just for a moment. So save, save your place there in Ezra. I just want us to make this connection because it's so important in the Bible. When you see the name Cyrus, Isaiah chapter 45 is our friend. It's our, it's our point of connection. In the book of Isaiah, um, there are, are four different times, I believe, that, that it talks about the coming of the servant of the Lord and the servant of the Lord passages. But here in verse 45, you get a very interesting reference to a figure who is called anointed, uh, which ties in with our word Messiah. Uh, the way that God would send someone to bring salvation and rescue to his people. So what we're trying to do mentally and theologically is we're trying to make the connection between Cyrus and the book of Ezra and then what Isaiah 45 says. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, which you would normally think of as, as going to be a, like a part of the people of God. <laughs> going to be a really anointed. To Cyrus. Are you serious? So the Persian ruler is called here the anointed one, the rescuer that God is going to send to Cyrus. Hope he's not out of control. Well, don't worry, because what does the Lord say? Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That is a powerful passage when you think about the chaos of the world and, and the providence and the guidance that God has over all things that happen. I hope that's an encouragement to you tonight. I know that's not the main point of the passage, but, but I hope that's an encouragement to see the connection, to see God's providence in this way, how he raises Cyrus up to carry out his decree. Um, you think about um, God's providence not only over the kings, but over the resources. If you go back to Ezra chapter 1, and you go down to... Verse 4, so Ezra chapter 1, verse 4, God, uh, there's this decree from Cyrus that the people are going to return. And in Ezra chapter 1, verse 4, 
It says, let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. <laughs> so, <laughs> just like on September 12th, uh, when we're going to present this master plan to you and these ideas, the very first question that everyone will have, and frankly it's the first question I have, would be, uh, hey, Pastor Owen, how are we going to pay for that? <laughs> You're like, oh, good question. So here go the people of God returning from exile back to Jerusalem. They're going to go back and they're going to rebuild this temple and, and they're going to reestablish the, the offerings and they're going to build up the city and somebody in the back raises their hand and like, uh, excuse me, how are we going to pay for that? And God says, I've raised up a pagan king to make this happen and I can also provide the resources to make this happen. Um, now here's a neat connection. When the people of God came out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, do you remember who gave them all this incredible stuff as they were going out of Exodus? It was the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians as they were leaving to go back to, to the Promised Land. Two different things happen as the people are coming out of exile. They take goods from Persia, that, from, from, not Persia, from Babylon that they're going to take back. Here's the other thing that happens. I told you earlier that not everybody went into exile. There were still people living in the promised land. And as they go back, Cyrus decrees that they too are going to provide resources for this to happen. What it shows us, and, and it would be bad theology to connect this story too much to the Emmaus master plan, so I want to be careful there. But here's what it does show us. It's a famous phrase that you guys have heard and heard repeated over the years that can sound trite, but, but it really does work. Where God guides, he provides. Where God guides, he provides. Now, we can't go out and make up our own plans and say, God, why did you not provide the resources for that? Because it's where God guides. As he directs his will, as he guides his people, he provides what, what is needed. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything in the entire world. And so when he sends his people back from exile, he's going to provide for them because his providence knows no bounds. So they plunder the Babylonians, the Persians let them go back, there's already resources waiting for them in the land, the people are commanded to help, and we'll read more about that next week um, as it happens. When you think of providence, there's a word that's helpful, it's a $100 theology word, but it's really helpful, it's called concurrence. In theology, when we talk about concurrence, here's the definition. Without violating the way things happen in the world, so the meaningfulness of cause and effect, the freely given agency of individuals, God ensures that his will, his sovereign decree, occurs. How he does this is a mystery to us, but it is, consistent teach it is the consistent teaching of Scripture. So when we think about why things happen in the world, uh, did God create people as puppets? No, that gets into a type of determinism that just doesn't match Scripture. <laughs> Are we free will agents that do whatever we want without the guidance of God? Absolutely not. <laughs> in, in the Bible, in theology, we hold both of those together, that in some way that goes beyond anything we can ever imagine, people act in the world in cause and effect ways, and at the same time, we can say God is sovereign and providential over all of that. And we just hold those together because that's the way that things work according to Scripture. And that's what we mean when we talk about the, the providence of God. Number two, and moving much more quickly on these last two. 
So first, Ezra 1 teaches about God's providence, and man, that's good news. Number two, it teaches us that God's promises are trustworthy. God has already promised his people years before in in the prophecies of Jeremiah that they're going to be in exile, but don't worry, you're coming back. That, That prophecy about Cyrus and Isaiah 45 that was written years and years before Cyrus would, would, would come on the scene. These prophecies, these promises of God that are given in Ezra, we start to see those fulfilled. Now, the one we don't ultimately see fulfilled is who is ultimately going to be the Messiah. <laughs> that one is left out there. That waits for the pages of the New Testament to come. But what Ezra 1 does remind us of are how God's promises are fulfilled just to see this, turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, just so we can see the way this plays out, um, and then we'll get ready to wrap up here in just a moment. But Jeremiah chapter 25, so you're going to have to go further in the Old Testament, a little further over in your Bible, toward Isaiah, and then ultimately to, uh, to Jeremiah. We want to see the way this promise comes, comes about here. So this is going to be Jeremiah chapter 25, Starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this is Jeremiah 25, verse 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Can you imagine saying for 23 years the same thing over and over again, and, and the people not responding, and Jeremiah just keeps going. Um, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years." Verse 12, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making that land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So again, what do you get from Jeremiah 25? <laughs> you give a prophecy of exactly how things are going to play out. The, the rise and the fall of the Babylonians, the coming of the Persians, the providence of God played out, his promises fulfilled, which leads to number three on your note sheet. 
providence of God, the promises of God, and to know that his salvation and worship are certain. As God brings people back to the land, he brings them back so that they will worship him as Savior, so that they will know his glory, so that they will experience all that he has for them. And again, that's going to have to wait a few more years for the coming of the Messiah at this time, but he brings them back for the purposes of worship. And so as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see that theme develop, and we're going to talk about what that looks like. But tonight, we just want to start with how powerful these books are, showing us God's plans, showing us God's providence, and then at the very end of the Hebrew Bible, pointing us ahead to the coming of the Messiah and, and the expectation that would have been for the people, the hope. Now, we sit in a different place. <laughs> we sit in a place where we're able to look back on the coming of the Messiah to bring salvation, and from our seat, now we look forward to eternity when Christ will return to make all things perfect, all things new. And so we live in between the times just as they did. We're just able to look back on Jesus as Messiah and then look forward to eternity. Let me pray for us and we'll wrap up. Father, uh, there are multiple times that, that we watch the news or we hear reports and we ask why, why things are happening. And those are questions that, in our minds, we, we simply don't know how to, how to answer. But in your word, we have examples of how you've worked throughout history. And we have your promises given to us in your word. And we are in a position to look back and to see in your word the coming of the Messiah. Not Cyrus, who would come, but Jesus, the Christ, who would come. And so God, as we deal with turmoil on a world stage, as we deal with friends and family who are hurting even now because of situations in life, God, we rest in your providence. We trust in your promises. And God, we want to live every day sharing the good news of your salvation with those around us. God, continue to do that good work among our church family. Thank you for the spirit of love and encouragement that exists in our church family. And God, we pray that in days to come, we will continue to be able to celebrate how you're at work. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.